Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. On the end here is our guest, Bob Kalajian. And Bob um, has been an MBSR teacher and teaching MBSR in Long Beach for many, many years. Uh, he's a physician, I think now retired. Retired. He's a retired yes. physician. And he leads a wonderful sit on Wednesday evenings downtown at, is it the First Congregational Church? Um, so we're really happy to have him. We talked to him maybe like a year or two ago about coming, and it's taken this long <laughs> to get him to come. So um, I was so excited about what they had to say. I could barely meditate, I must admit. <laughs> so um, we're not going to go around and say names because we're having Cafe Dharma, and we're all going to be having coffee and goodies and talk to each other. So stay after, and we've got lots of food and coffee, and let's all share and talk together. Um, and I think we'll just let Casey start, yeah? Good. Yeah, I'll jump right into it. Um, so, yeah, I'll be uh, speaking on, on compassion in regards to adversity, dealing with adversity. First thing I want to say is that compassion is a skill. Compassion is a skill. Compassion is a skill. And we look at why do we want to learn any skill? Why do we want to hone in and perfect a skill? You could just name something. Like why would you want to learn a skill? To improve. To improve. To get better at something. A lot of times we learn skills because they're useful, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're fun, right? Or they lead to some, some sort of contentment or happiness, right? So compassion is this incredible skill that we really, really, uh, it's really beneficial to cultivate. This really amazing skill that if we get good at it, in times of need and adversity, it, became, it can be extremely beneficial. Even when we're not in, in struggling times, just to practice compassion feels really, really good, right? So in adversity, what we really need in those times, the struggling times, is resiliency, Right? We need something to, to bring us into a place of resilience. And what's happening, let's say in times of high stress, uh, we're in the more primitive part of our brain, right? the amygdala and the fight, flight, or freeze part of the brain. So of course the other part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex, and this is the more cognitive, the more reason-based part of the brain. Well, luckily, they have, they have showed through, uh, through neuroscience that the bridge between the two, because of, our, because of just the growth of, and the structure of the brain, the primitive part of the brain has a lot of power to talk with the prefrontal cortex. So it's usually in charge. Like when, we're, when we feel a lot of fear and anxiety, you know, this part of the brain is very good at letting us know that we should be scared even though we look around and we could say, hey, I'm totally fine, there's no problem, right? So the bridge for the prefrontal cortex, the reasoning part of the brain, to go back and talk to this fight, flight, or freeze, the bridge that brings us back is compassion. It's quite amazing that this just happens. So when we practice compassion, oxytocin is produced in the brain. So you may know oxytocin is kind of like this this love chemical, it wants us to cuddle, it wants us to connect, right, part of the brain. But this is very, very interesting, is that it also produces bravery and courage. This is a very, very interesting. If we want to bring our practice into our, our, our times of strife, we need to have a certain amount of courage to actually stay with it, right? So if we want to be mindful and to rest in non-judgmental compassionate awareness actually be with what is happening we're going to need this sense of bravery and courage mm-hmm. right and also for ourselves and for others so this is the actual thing that in times of of um, calamities they find that people when they rush into action 
that this is the chemical that they could find in the brain to help others in that situation, right? So it's quite amazing. And again, this is a skill. So just like any skill, we can cultivate our expertise at it. So we notice that in times of struggle, it might be very difficult to move into the practice, right? It might be very difficult to do that. Yet as we turn up the volume on our compassion, as we get better at it, instead of moving into a coping mechanism that could be unhealthy, can we actually sit with what is? Can we actually be there with it? And what allows us to be able to do that, right, is compassion. So I'm going to go over a couple studies. I'll check my time. So they did one study where they brought in uh, females and they they asked these women to bring in a loved one. And when they brought in the loved one, they said, okay, we're going to give your loved one an electric shock. So that's probably, they, the people that they brought in, they're probably thinking, I picked the wrong partner here. Like, <laughs> she just brought me into a study where they're gonna deliver electric shocks. I probably picked the wrong one. But, um, so, and they, they tested a couple different options. So once they were, when they were giving the electric shock to their loved one, in one part of the study, they allowed the women to hold the hand of their loved one and give support in that way, give loving support where they received electric shock. And this is a minor electric shock, we're not like talking electric chair here. So. And then in the other part of the study, they gave them a little stress ball to squeeze. So they weren't allowed to make contact with their partner at all and just gave them a stress ball. And so I'll read the outcomes. They said, when they were able to hold the hand and connect with their partner, it created or it secreted the chemical of hope. So in their brain chemistry, the chemical of hope was released. The reward chemicals, the action which, which provide this, this sense of something good is about to happen, and a decrease in the amygdala and the fear response. When they're just able to hold the hand of the loved one, right? There's a sense of hope, sense of strength, like something's good about to happen. A sense of this, this hopelessness went away. Now, when they were just holding the stress ball, which is more of just an individualistic kind of taking care of their own stress, holding the stress ball, none of that happened. So the fear response was just in play. They felt a sense of hopelessness, right? So just that subtle, that subtle heart opening, and we could feel it. You know, when we do a meta practice or we could feel, what, what's it like within our, within our bodies? How does it feel when we give a moment of compassion? We could feel that, right? Okay, so here's another one. <clears throat> there was a study done when they taught people a simple meta practice, a loving kindness practice, a practice of compassion. And they had them practice it for a couple months, for a very short amount of time, maybe five, 10 minutes a day, right? And then they brought these people who had never meditated, ever never studied compassion, and they brought them back in, and they had them watch videos of people that are going through very struggling times. For example, they showed a video of a couple who had just lost uh, their child, mm-hmm. just lost their child, maybe, uh, I think it was an 11-year-old child. So there, it was on the news, and they were watching this grief happen. And what they noticed was, was that the same thing happened, giving that support you know, to the loved one in the other study, that a sense of hope and a, a sense of, of strength was part of their reaction along with, with sadness, right? But it was, it was balanced out. This balance of hopefulness and that it was gonna be okay, even though there was something very tragic that happened. And so moving into our own adversity, this is what we wanna hold on to, right? If we wanna, again, sit with the practice, we need a certain something that enables our mind to calm enough 
to bring in a sense of reason, to even get us to the place of the cushion. How many times have we been in our practice and life is very stressful and we feel too stressed out to even meditate? Mm -hmm. Like I can't even sit still right now, mm -hmm. right? I can't even be with that. And if we wanna move from, let's say sadness or adversity to happiness, this is a very big jump. But if we're feeling a lot of stress, moving from this stress into compassion is accessible, right? Because the aversion of our own suffering is compassion itself. Right, I'll say that again. Aversion to our own suffering is compassion itself. Definition of compassion, not wanting ourselves or others to suffer. So when we have an aversion, not wanting to suffer, is compassion arising. And so just remembering that could put us into a place of like, yes, and instead of maybe going into a coping mechanism that's unhealthy, we could start to reiterate, may myself and others be free from suffering, mm -hmm. right? And feel that connectiveness. I'm not the only one that suffers. Okay, right on time. <laughs> <laughs> So the inspiration for this panel today is um, the book by Christina Feldman, Compassion, if any of you are interested, it's a beautiful book. And I wanted to read some of what she wrote, because I love her, her writings on compassion. Um, and so um, going to try to talk about self-compassion in 10 or 12 minutes. I'm not sure, but we'll try. <laughs> so this is from Christina. The Buddha said, um, you could search the whole world over and not find anyone more deserving of your love and compassion than yourself. Um, I could never extend a boundless compassion to anyone unless I know deeply what it means to hold myself in a compassionate heart. So the capacity to, to feel and practice compassion in the world um, needs compassion internally. You know, the balance needs to be there. Um, and she wrote, within this inner world, we can sow the seeds of the compassionate heart or the alienated heart. And so many of us have developed this tendency through our own suffering, usually early in childhood, to have um, a very harsh, critical internal landscape within our minds. The self-talk is harsh, we're hard on ourselves, mm -hmm. um, we push away our vulnerability and our difficult emotions. And a lot of us say if we treated our other people as the way in which we treat ourselves internally, woo, Right? We're very hard in there. Uh, and um, so let me see what else she wrote, and then we'll talk a little bit more. We often <coughs> alternate between extremes of self-obsession and self-neglect. Mm -hmm. And um, this capacity to allow ourselves to fully experience in an embodied way the more vulnerable parts of our psyche, um, the difficult parts, the parts we don't want to look at, the darker parts, the parts we want to shove away, this capacity to hold them with loving kindness and compassion for ourselves, an open heart, is um, quite healing and really does lead to wisdom, which Bob will talk about and I want to talk about one of the practices that I've developed or I've been practicing. I haven't developed it. Um, and, and she also writes about, we tend to think far more about what we hate in our bodies, minds, and hearts. That's on our, the, this negativity bias, right? We're always churning up what we're not doing right and how we're not enough. Um, than what we honor or respect, and we fall into this endless project of, I have to be better to be okay. Mm -hmm. and, and she has a poem in here that I really love, because I identify with it so much. It's from Kabir. Friend, please tell me what I can do about the world. I keep spinning out of myself. I gave up expensive clothes and bought a robe. 
but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought burlap, but I still <laughs> throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. <laughs> I stopped being a sexual elephant, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. <laughs> I finally gave up anger, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> when the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Kabir says, listen, my friend, there are very few that find the path. So, so the path is kind of dropping this, trying so hard to be this wonderful image of who you think you should be, which is an image. And one of the ways to practice that, that we don't talk about, is what we usually do is guide people into phrases and to feel this embodied open-heartness towards ourselves. There's one... Um, losing my time. Um, this, the, the Buddha wrote about another practice that I haven't heard too much about, so um, I'm going to read this to you and, and explain a bit about how we use this, and that is um, to pause and reflect moment by moment on our kindness and virtue, right? When compassion and kindness is showing up in our lives. And um, knowing so many of you in this group, there, there's a lot of giving, loving, generous, compassionate people in this room that really give a lot on so many levels. Um, and he talked about using this reflection um, as a doorway to opening compassion, self-compassion to ourselves. So this is what he wrote. Furthermore, there is the case where you uh, recollect your own virtues. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting virtue, the mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. The mind heads straight based on virtue. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones gains a sense of the goal, a sense of the dharma, gains joy, connected with the dharma in the one who is joyful. Rapture arises in the one who is rapturous. The body grows calm. One whose body is calm experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. You should develop this recollection of virtue while you're walking, while you're standing, while you're sitting, while you are lying down, while you're busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. So I don't know where this comes from exactly. I'm going to have to find it and tell you where in one of the suttas. But, um, a good way to practice compassion is to stop and take a moment of appreciation for how much you do care and how much you do give and the ways in which your heart opened and to allow yourself to feel the joy of the practice um, of loving kindness and compassion. Very often we're pushing against another goal and trying to get to something else without pausing and opening to the joy of the fact that we're on the path in a compassionate way, um, practicing all the virtues of Buddhism and the kindness in our hearts, and that we care so deeply. Um, cultivating this space that is just love. And, and what he's saying about that is by bringing up this self-compassion, you're also bringing up joy, rapture, ease, and calm. Um, and then as Bob will speak, wisdom follows. So to allow ourselves to ha take in the good, as Rick Hansen would say um, in his books on neurodharma. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I thought this was a beautiful passage that we're allowed to have appreciation for ourselves and really feel our own love. 
so that when that difficulty comes up and you fell short, this critic isn't coming in with a spear stabbing you, you know, um, right? So we'll talk more about this in Dharma talks to come. Um, it's a big subject. I'll let Bob take it over. Well, it's nice to be here, and I, um, I must apologize. I'm just a practitioner, and they asked me to come here and talk a little bit about uh, compassion. So I thought I would share a little bit about where I've been um, over a long period of time, but also over a short period of time. And recently, things have been very interesting for me. So I thought I would share a little bit of that. And it has to do with this notion of wisdom and compassion. And it goes back for me um, to the beginning, if I go back 25 years and look at my life as being really kind of crazy screwed up with kids in college and huge mortgage and a medical practice and a wife in graduate school, you know, the full catastrophe. And I read my diary from 25 years ago and I thought, oh wow, am I really screwed up? And uh, what I ended up doing was finding yoga and then I found a meditation teacher, a fellow named Suryadas, Lama Suryadas. And Surya was a good friend and a good teacher. The very first thing I remember him saying was that wisdom and compassion are two sides of a coin. And I have not understood that for most of the last 25 years. But he said that right from the very beginning, wisdom and compassion, two sides, same coin. So I think that's what Wendy's, in a sense, leading to. But I want to look at the piece that you really addressed, which is, how many of you are here because, like me, I was looking for the the teachings of the Buddha um, to solve this misery that was my life. I mean, I had a lot of pain. I had back pain. I had, I had a lot of emotional pain and so forth. And I'm just curious, does that ring a bell for some of you? I mean, are you here because you're looking to find some answer that makes you more comfortable or learn a technique like metta to self that helps you be more compassionate and towards yourself and feel more happy. I mean, it, it seems like I think a lot of us come to that. We come to the teachings of the Buddha looking for an answer, uh, a technique, um, a skill that will make our lives better. But then there's this piece, this, this piece of compassion. And the Buddha was emphatic about always towards self first. It's taught in right out of the Metta Sutta. It's it, you know his instructions were give it to yourself first because if, unless you're unless you can feel that quality yourself, you can't share it with anybody else. So he was real clear with that. But then the wisdom piece comes in, and that's the part I kept struggling with. And it turns out if you really get into the technical parts of the wisdom piece, the wisdom piece is no self. The wisdom piece came. Uh, sometime later, and nobody knows exactly when. Um, scholars talk about it as being sort of the second teaching, but if you look at the very early teachings of the Buddha, it was buried in there. It's pretty complicated, but it, and it gets really confusing, but it basically says this thing that's sitting before you called Bob, the retired doctor, uh, the student of the Dharma, uh, doesn't really exist in the way you think he exists, or he definitely doesn't exist in the way I think I exist. So this notion of no self gets complicated, but that ultimately is this, this wisdom piece. And so I'm, I'd like to share a little bit about my personal story and how that led me to where I'm kind of now understanding both wisdom and compassion from a totally different perspective. So in the last probably, and because of Casey, I'll give you credit because he, my teacher, I sat with Casey, I, I uh, sat in that little room with him on a regular basis and we looked at discernment, we looked at looking critically at what's coming up in the mind and looking critically at feelings and thoughts and I did a lot of kind of looking. And what I discovered was that this notion of self becomes very, very mushy and um, I also led, led myself into looking at being 71 years old and what kinds of things I have to look forward to in life. And I thought, well, the Buddha always said I should be looking at 
those realities of aging, getting sick and dying. So that's another part of that wisdom teaching. So I started doing that and the ultimate piece was that I think I finally got to the point of saying that who I think I am is really hard to put my finger on. I think I come up in various forms in a variety of different ways and ultimately that can't be defined. So if you get into this no-self piece and you get comfortable with it, that's the difficulty. If you get a little more comfortable with it, then suddenly all of that worry about learning the Dharma for the sake of making me better isn't nearly as important. And it suddenly over the last couple of months has been something that's been really interesting to watch because what happens is, you know, this Dharma to help me get better isn't nearly as important as the teaching of the Buddha as, or the sharing of my experience with you is really all about me trying to be beneficial to you, to, to all beings. And then if you try to expand that out even bigger, if the mind gets nice and big and spacious, then you can see compassion for all living beings, for the planet, for the space we live in, for all that's going on. And so I, I think I now understand a little bit more, and I don't understand it completely, but the notion of wisdom and compassion as having this, this, this quality that frees us up and lets helps us let go of our obsession with ourselves mm -hmm. and to move into a much bigger place of compassion is the path. Um, I could give you a quote from my teacher Charles. I love the way he said it. Um, he, he basically said, um, and th well, th he didn't say, he quoted one of his favorite sutras. He said, compassion without wisdom is bondage. Wisdom without compassion is bondage. And Charles always said that his ultimate goal was freedom. That when we're free, um, freedom is the aim of the spiritual practice in Buddhism, he said. This is his words. And the lack of compassion expresses a lack of freedom. To hold oneself as more important than others, to attribute to the self a reality it does not possess, is a form of bondage and an obstacle to compassion. In Buddhism, freedom and compassion require the illusory central position of the self to be unveiled. And that's a teaching from actually like 18, 19 years ago. And I never really understood it until the last couple of months. So I guess I'm, I don't think it's something that I'm inviting you to jump into. I'm just inviting you to entertain the notion that we can see compassion for self, we can see compassion for our loved ones, <coughs> for our children, for our friends, and we can build on that compassion and, and allow it to expand and grow and nurture it in the ways that, that Casey's and, and Wendy have talked about. But I'm inviting you to see as also of this little part of the path of letting go of the sense of self being such a central part of the process and to let go of, of that need and worry about ourselves so much and to practice in these variety of ways and look at the teachings in, 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 in this particular area, the teachings of wisdom, to see if we can get to a point of really appreciating how really beautiful um, the world and the universe really is. Sitting on a deck up in the Santa Cruz Mountains a couple of weeks ago, watching the dragonflies and the bats eating the bugs, mm -hmm. watching the trees and the breeze and the, and the day moving into night, and the appearance of, you know, it's really, really beautiful sitting on that deck. He's been there. Uh, <laughs> And it was, there was nobody. It had been two weeks of silence, of no language, no time, time beyond time. And it gets darker and darker, and suddenly there's Mars and Saturn. And as they move across the sky, you realize that whoever this guy named Bob is, 
is sitting there, not at the center of the universe, but way out on one edge. And that all of this is really an amazing, amazing universe filled with amazing people and, and beings that deserve our care and kindness. And, and that, was, that was kind of the way my experience of the two sides of the coin really, really kind of brought it all to, it, it just brought it all together. So I'm going to share that with you. Um, I'm going to finish with what I think, it, it, this came up with reading 25 years of my diaries on this two-week retreat was just amazing. But I also found something that came from Suryadas, Lama Suryadas gave me this, and this was from his retreat time when he was with my teacher Charles, the two of them in France with the Tibetans in their three-year, uh, three-month retreats. And this is called Free and Easy. It's a Vajra song from one of their teachers. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no real importance at all because it has no reality whatsoever. Don't become attached to it. Don't identify with it and pass judgment upon it. Let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything, and everything vanishes and reappears magically without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a rainbow which you pursue without ever catching. Although it does not exist, it has always been there and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. And as soon as you open and relax this grasping, space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great elephant who is already quietly at home. <laughs> nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you very much. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one thing that we're um, we're pointing to, but we're not saying directly, is I think teaching here and for a while when we're talking about the Brahma Baharas, the practice of karuna, loving kindness, all, all the practices. The part that gets very sticky for a lot of us is when the Buddha has has taught that our loving kindness and compassion extends to people that we may not like mm-hmm. and maybe our enemies and don't share our view. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been the hardest part when we've studied Brahma Baharas and we've talked about um, these heart practices. And so we don't want to skip over it either, you know, on our panel. And to say that this is a challenge of, um, of practice and part of the no self teachings is that we're able to see beyond our own self view and not cover the heart or close the heart. Yeah. And certainly in a time like this, mm-hmm. when our country is so polarized, um, it's, it's really sad and distressing and on many levels that the teachings, the Buddhist teachings reflect holding the heart open for all, um, even when you don't care for that person, what that person is doing, saying, or speaking. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the edge of our practice, the challenge of our practice, that we're all, um, the razor's edge that we all, we all walk on. Mm-hmm. But there's a, 
cut yourself a little slack. Um, the Buddha was very clear. The Buddha said, this is a gradual path. This is a very gradual path. So if you can't find your way to giving loving kindness to your, you know, the, to the enemy, um, give yourself a little leeway there. It's hard. Pick somebody a little lighter and realize that this isn't something that happens overnight. You, don't, you know, you just don't set out and do this work with, with immediate results. It takes a long time. I, that would be my counsel, is be kind to yourself and, and yet keep working. Yeah, and I like to, yeah, yeah. I like to hold some of the imagery of great teachers in just something, sometimes there are things that I can't do at this moment or fully. But I look at the civil rights leaders, the people at the lunch counters who mm -hmm. sat with their hearts open in the face of hate, hatred, and, and lack of safety. And images like that, like I hold that as teachers in hard times. Um, well, like the Native Americans who yes. are in Dakota right now. That's yes. exactly what's happening. Yeah. Do you want to say a couple of words about that, a little bit more? Well, just yeah. that. I think that's all. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's something happening right now where they're being those people that were at the counter, you know. They were, they're standing there as water protectors and, and they're making a stand and all these nations have come together who were polarized for years, all these American, you know, natives. And, you know, that's what they're doing. They're standing with an open heart and with love and, and then having to face such aggression and still doing that, you know. So it's, it's happening right here, right now then you see that their heart is for the benefit of all beings they keep reiterating this is all of our water yeah. like we're standing for right. for everyone and even such such a great example of looking at the officers and saying we're taking care of your child's water mm -hmm. you know we're protecting and to hold that sense of compassion <clears throat> so beautifully in that situation that's that's a great example. Actually, a close friend of mine is one of the Native American elders. She's been in jail. And uh, it, it's been very difficult to, to have that compassion, you know, because of what's happened. So, so just see a lot of prayer and, and uh, like you were saying, be easy with myself because I, I can't be full of love for, you know, how they've been treated. Well, you know, we get to see what it looks like when we're not in compassion. You know, it's like I, I know that I've felt really angry because where my, where my deep sadness and my anger comes from is when I see any of these groups have been subjugated or hurt, be it, you know, Native American or women or the racism, etc. you know, um, differently abled people, you know, who are being made fun of or whatever it is, that's what it represents. It represents this, this lack of compassion. And then I notice that I get riled up in Paula personality about it, but then, then I'm going into this same area that I'm not liking, so I'm starting to become what I dislike. And how do I, as a human being, with such deep care, hold this? That's right, yeah, yeah. And so you can see that edge yeah. that we're all on and in together. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember this story that was from a Goenka retreat. So any of you that's been there, do you remember the one where he's talking about they stumble over something and this guy insults him? Mm -hmm. And he's very uh, self-righteous about it. And then he takes the story again and it happens to his son and he's very upset and very angry. It was very undeserved. And then his disciples are with him. And the same thing happens. But then it happens, the guy insults a stranger and he doesn't have any reaction. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, Bob, about what you were saying about ego. 
our ego is what extends to certain, you know, you love your child, it's not okay to insult your mother, unless you do it. And, <laughs> you know, so our ego extends to the things where our ego extends, like our family and our friends and our sangha and our political person of choice. But it became for me a real metaphor of where the ego starts taking over and where it's not. And if I can think of myself, as you were talking about, is no more important than that stranger that was insulted, now I've got a little handle on what that is. So the importance that we give me and mine is, is what the ego is. I'd like to come back to that in a minute, but I would like to ask a question because what I felt over two of you um, is a sense of real, a, a real sense of, of sadness and anger, and a sense of, of these emotions that are really, really tough to work with. And I guess the question I would ask my teachers is, you know, what are we going to do with those feelings? What do we do with this feeling of anger? And sadness, the sadness for people being hurt, the anger for the people doing, doing the hurting. What do we, what's the teachings point to in, in, in just being with those things? And, and I'll ask that question, put it out there to anybody who's got some experience in doing this work. And I want to come back to that question. Okay. Not for me. Does anybody have another well, that's good. So you support each other. Okay. Well, it's too, it's like with what Casey was saying at the beginning, it's in what takes bravery is being with it, you know? So like what I've been doing, my practice has been being with the sadness as it comes up, being with the anger as it comes okay. up, noticing the difference between reacting and responding, you know? It's, it's been, it's, it's in choosing not to numb out. You know, so, so, and, and what you're saying when you're saying you're going to be with the sadness, mm -hmm. or you're going to be with the anger, without doing anything. Right. Okay, so the key is not doing anything, mm -hmm. just being with it. Right. And this came up, Bonnie and I had this discussion, of probably the reason she suggests I maybe come to this, um, in our group over at the church. And the, the, the thing I was having difficulty with was just exactly that. What do you, we had... Um, we had a person who was saying, you know, it's just so sad, so overwhelming, and I don't know what I can do about it. And I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and I do this, and I do this, and, and the teaching, I think, in the Buddha, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it is this courageous move to just be totally and completely with it. And mm -hmm. uh, not, and, and then the, the trap in, I, God, I've been there so many times, mm -hmm. is to find some method to kind of step sideways so you're not really with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the saboteur comes in and says, well, you know, I, was, I remember in medicine, it's like being with somebody with lung cancer, and the sidestep is, did you smoke? Mm -hmm. What difference does it make? Mm -hmm. What difference is, I'm an anesthesiologist meeting in the front of the first time. And I realized that that used to be an old question because it got me off the hook of owning the sadness of this person right in front of me. Yeah. Okay? So be careful of the saboteur who's going to get you to sidestep in some, some sneaky way you won't recognize. I think that's one of the things to learn. I would suggest the ego, a word for ego is view. Um, I would suggest our view is sometimes circumscribed around our immediate friends and family. And I would encourage our view as the, the view, the spaciousness that comes from the freedom of the practice is to expand the view to be all-inclusive. And, and as that view of knowing that me and mine, them and theirs, I, I hate the word them. It's like us, it doesn't make any sense to them. Those, those and them, there's mm -hmm. the two words that give me the most trouble. Those people mm -hmm. is such an isolating, separating kind of process. So I, I would just certainly suggest that 
that it, it's my ego that's going out there. It isn't myself that's going out there. It's my view that keeps expanding. And as it becomes expanded, the self actually gets a whole lot more dilute in my experience. Yeah, but that to me is what ego is opposed to this concrete self is. Okay. Okay. I see. I mean, it's I, yeah, we're playing semantics. I won't. I won't. Yeah, okay. Okay. And you're hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, Linda wanted to read something. I wanted to make sure we got. We have some time. Yeah. Oh, yes, I would like yes. to. Um, okay. I remember a couple of weeks ago when you were forming the compassion panel. I think you put it out if anyone has anything they want to read yes. about compassion. And um, this is a story I wrote, and um, I found one. What's behind his tattoos? I met a man yesterday who has several tattoos on his face. He has names carved into the spaces above his eyebrows. He has words and pictures on his neck and the designs are crude and harsh. I didn't want to look at him. I didn't want to look at those tattoos. I didn't want to stare and I just didn't want to see them. This young man was a guide for me and my friends as we visited Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. This is an organization that takes challenged youth and helps them find their way. Our tattoo guide was one of them. He began the tour by telling us his life story. He narrated it as if he had spoken it several times. The words felt important, yet he was not carrying any emotion when he delivered them. His upbringing, a crack baby, mother addicted to drugs, father died of AIDS, lived in foster homes, turned to crime. When he spoke of these horrendous experiences, I got the sense that he was rushing through it to get it all out of the way, important for us to hear, but not where he really wanted to linger. Not until he started to talk about what he has learned since coming to Homeboy did he begin to show his feelings. He says he has learned welding and firefighting. He now has his own apartment, a first, and when he graduates from the program, he will be helped to find a job in one of the areas he has studied. He felt light and new when he shared his dreams, as if he's still testing them out with a crowd of strangers. And as we toured our group, he toured our group around the facility, he would stop and honor other young people in the program who were also finding their way, urging them to share their life story with us. We met the leaders of the program and learned of the cafe and the bakery and that everyone does every job for six weeks and then rotates. He talked about random drug tests that all participants receive. But he says if you fail, you don't get kicked out. You get sent to rehab to figure yourself out. We were all sold on the benefits of this unique program that helps so many. There isn't even an on-site office staffed with doctors who specialize in one thing, removing tattoos. And as we stood outside the office, our guy talked about the process because he is having his tattoos removed too. He says the tattoos on his face used to be much darker, more prominent. Now they are lighter because he had set, has had seven treatments. He estimates he has about 14 more to go. I asked him what it was like for him to go through the treatment and does he feel hope? And our guy took a deep breath and smiled. And then I saw his beautiful face. As he said to all of us, I can't believe that someday I will have my handsome face back. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, all of us could see it. We could see him handsome and beautiful and pure. And we all joined in and told him he was already handsome now. <laughs> and from there, we completed our tour and finished with lunch in the Homegirl Cafe. I sat right next to my new friend. And guess what? I didn't see those tattoos anymore. Mm -hmm. I just saw a sweet young man sitting next to me while we ate. And I don't know what separates me from seeing the beauty, but I do know when I see it. That's all I see. Oh, thank you. So this has been um, a great experiment in a community Dharma Cafe, don't you think? Yeah, very nice. I want to thank Bob for coming. Thank you. And um, we hope this will be a format we can really explore and play with and, every, and have everyone participate in. Um, and uh, I just feel the energy of the room. You know, one of the definitions of compassion is the quivering heart. You know, the heart that quivers, the heart that stays open. And um, we all have this capacity to hold the heart open when it wants to close, you know? 
and open it a little more, a little more, a little more, and that we're we're in it together. That as a sangha, we get to um, stretch this muscle, for a better word. And so it's very beautiful to share just this feeling in this room right now. And so we'll do some metta um, with this feeling. And if you want to close your eyes for a moment and. together this morning and sharing this quivering heart, this open heart, this wish for all beings everywhere. To feel safety and care. You may want to put your hand on your heart. And if there's any place right now in the world, the difficulties going on in our country, anywhere in the globe and beyond, and sending out our true caring, our true capacity for love, for generosity, and silently repeating the phrase, each one at a time. May all beings be safe and free of harm. May all beings be healthy in body and in mind. May all beings be peaceful, free of suffering, experience ease, peace, and wisdom. May all beings have their needs met, live in safety, and have dignity. May all beings be free of suffering. Just listen to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.